Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the latest episode of the AI Writers Pod. I'm joined by Tom, as usual. Tom, how are you? Yeah, it's uh, I'm good, Leanne. It's uh, been a good week for us, a couple more wins. And with every win, you can just taste the trophies getting closer and it's getting to the crunch. Yeah, hopefully, you know, Liverpool can get over the line. And it, it, it's a great opportunity for them to be in two really good competitions at this stage in the season. So much to play for. Um, and so much to talk about, which is, you know, really, really good from our point of view. And joining us today is is Dave. Dave, how are you? I'm good, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Um, nerves are starting to creep in ahead of, uh, ahead of Chelsea. But, um, but yeah, obviously, it's uh, it's all good at the moment. Yeah, it's always a, that's always a nervy game for us Liverpool fans. Because, uh, obviously, because of 2013-14 most recently. But Chelsea always seem to just turn it on whenever they come to Anfield. Um, but today we're going to be discussing uh, Dave's recent article on Alisson, who's, I guess he's kind of been talked about this season, mainly for the job he's done in terms of keeping so many clean sheets and, and helping Liverpool improve defensively. But also a couple of people have pinpointed that there have still been errors, there have been opportunities that he's maybe not taken or you know saves he should have made. Um, so Dave, why don't you kick us off with your thoughts on Alisson as a whole this season and, and basically you know the point you're trying to get across in your article which seems to be he can do better yeah exactly um it was prompted by his performance against Tottenham where I thought he was just a bit looked a bit jittery on the whole really and then I am um, sent a message in in our writers chat saying oh I'm thinking about doing an article about him and one of the writers um actually said it might not be the best idea because um He'd put out a tweet criticising him and got quite a lot of backlash for it. But because of that, I thought like it was probably more important to acknowledge that there's room for improvement because, you know, we can't be that complacent as fans, really. Um, so I guess like 
the first thing I tried to emphasize was that, you know, writing the article itself shows that we're in a luxury position now. Um, because we have this like world class goalkeeper and, you know, there's still, um, you know, room to criticize him really. So, um, I felt like I had to acknowledge straight away, like how good Allison is. So I looked at the, the stats, obviously most clean sheets in the league, fewest goals conceded. Then I looked at some of the big moments. So I was thinking about the, um, Everton game at Anfield where he kept us in it early on. Um, the, game at Old Trafford recently as well, where he took the ball off Lingard when he was trying to go around him. That could be a massive moment. And obviously, probably his best uh, save of all was against Napoli in the Champions League. And uh, if we go on to win that composition, um, that could be viewed as uh, a massive moment in our run, really. But then I started to look at um, where the improvements might be. So I looked at the moments where he could have done better um, conceding goals. So there was... Um, the game against Crystal Palace, the force at Anfield, their third goal. Um, he got a quite a big hand on that. Um, sort of, and there was sort of a similar situation against Burnley at Anfield recently as well with, um, a goal they scored, which made it a bit more interesting than it needed to be. And then I devoted a bit more attention to the high profile errors that he's made. So you have Leicester, which I don't think is too big a deal now because, um, he's obviously learned from it and, People will say at the time that it might have been a necessary um, experience for him, given that he was a bit too confident with his feet. Then there was United, where he spilled the ball to Lingard uh, at Anfield. I think he was, having watched the replay, he was slightly unlucky with that one because the ball does sort of bounce off his knee um, and out when he's trying to gather it. And then, obviously, most recently, there was Fulham, um, which some people said was a 50-50 blame with him and Van Dijk, but Really, I think that the keeper has to be a lot stronger and a lot more alert in that situation. And it was quite interesting to look at the stats. Um, um, based on that, I found that only Pickford um, had made more errors leading to goals in the Premier League. I think that's changed now because I think Begovic made a couple of the weekend, but even still, that's higher than, um, you know, he's in the same sort of position in those tables as Mignolet and Carrius were, which is slightly alarming. Um, and then finally, I just sort of looked at how we can't really insulate players from criticism. So at the level we're at, I think players need to feel like they're under intense scrutiny and that the right mentality is always like, my best isn't good enough. I need to keep striving for more. And obviously that applies to everyone in the squad. It's not just a specific issue related to Alisson. And yeah, I was just thinking like this idea that if you criticise a player on Twitter just because he's been having a really good season... You know, that shouldn't be, that shouldn't lead to you getting a lot of criticism. It should be a case of, you know, we need to place these high demands on the players, especially when at the position we're in at the moment, we basically need to be perfect. We can't afford any, any room for error, really. So the sort of ultimate conclusion I made in the article was that if Alisson wants to be the best in the world and that in itself says a lot about his quality, that that's the goal that he should have, then he has to iron out a few of the lapses in his game. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting one, and um, as Tom said at the start of the show, I think it's slightly controversial in that some people, as you kind of alluded to, some people would say this is a guy who's got seventeen clean sheets. He's you know he's come to Liverpool, made such a difference, made some really big saves. Why why are we complaining? Why have we got this criticism of him? Um, and you know, 
the, I think the thing is with things like Twitter is Liverpool are in a really good season. Liverpool are in a really good moment, and therefore nitpicking the negatives of players. People don't really like to hear that. Um, from my personal point of view, I I agree in terms of some of the mistakes he's made haven't been great. But I think when you've got a goalkeeper who has played such an important part in you getting to the Champions League uh, quarterfinals, getting to a stage in the Premier League where we're five games away and, and hopefully, you know, City make a make a mistake and, and we can win the title or something. And he's had such a big hand in both of those competitions that I think it's slightly difficult to be able to sit here and and kind of lament him too much. I'd be interested to see what, what Tom thinks here because I I think with Allison his his importance to this team, his influence on this team hasn't just been in terms of those clean sheets, in terms of those save percentages. Um, I think in the article you said he has the highest save percentage in the Premier League. So, you know, that that's an indication of, of in itself that yes, he's making these mistakes, but he's still having such an important role. And then his role extends beyond that to, to you know, the build-up play, the progression, the the passing ability that he possesses. So, Tom, what do you kind of make of Alisson and, and his impact this season in light of you know the the errors that have been pointed out. I think there's nothing wrong with saying, look, this is a player who's having a good season. This is a player that we know is really important to this team, and this is a player that is clearly a step up on the players we've had before us. But this is a player that can do better than this. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying this isn't this isn't a player's best performances. This is where a player can still improve because ultimately that's what it's about. If you want to be it's like Dave says, you know, we're, we're starting from the premise that Alisson is a keeper who's made a huge impact on our season and has the potential to be the best keeper in the world. When you're starting from that premise, then I don't think there's anything wrong in saying this, that and the other is potential areas for improvement, potential areas to look at. Especially when I think maybe Alisson is a player that isn't necessarily getting as much criticism as potentially he should be for certain areas of his game. You know, I've seen people say that because we didn't lose any of the games that he made big mistakes in, that it doesn't matter. And to to an extent, that's true. But when you to an extent, when you're a goalkeeper, I mean, this is some, something we talked about before. You know, with strikers, if you make a mistake, you miss a big chance, you can just score the next one. With goalkeepers, if you make a mistake and it costs your team a goal, there's not much you can do about it. You just kind of got to hope that the rest of the team bails you out a bit. And I mean, to be fair, Liverpool have done that consistently this season. You know, against Leicester, we won anyway. Against Man United, we won anyway. Against Fulham, we won anyway. So to an extent, yeah, okay, it is who really cares? But you know. This is a goalkeeper that I think is is very, very good. He's clearly very, very good because he's made a lot of top saves. But this is a goalkeeper that has shown this season clear areas for room for improvement. He has made two or three really, really poor errors. The sort of area, errors that Mignolet and Carrius did make and did get rightly castrated uh, for. I think what I would say is one area that we sort of see is that sort of that should have probably should have saved it. We don't see too many of those from him. That's the sort of the big thing, you know. There was the start of last season, for example, in the first sort of, of the first ten goals Liverpool conceded last season, there were seven of them where I was looking at and going, Mignolet probably should have saved that because it was not a difficult shot to save. And I don't think there's too many of those under him. You know, increasingly we're starting to see that he's he's an excellent shot stopper, and it's a great start to have a goalkeeper who you expect him to save the ball. The issue is just that sometimes his distribution can be a bit poor. Sometimes he makes some mental errors. Sometimes he doesn't necessarily pick up, uh, you know, the ball. So, for example, you know, you look at 
the Leicester goal, that is a case of him just picking the wrong pass. He's he's made a few silly mistakes like that since. He has definitely cut it down, but he has made some silly mistakes in terms of his dist- in terms of the way he wants to play football. And, and to an extent, that is going to happen with the type of keeper he is, but he still makes those mistakes. And then you've got areas where he just he's coming out and doesn't claim the ball properly or where he makes a mistake trying to catch it. And we've seen that a few times. So I think, you know, there are clear areas in his game for him to improve. Um, but equally, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying this is a top player. This is how I want to see this top player become even better. Yeah, I was going to ask, and you, you kind of touched on it there, Dave. Do, do you think that it's it's kind of the way that Alisson plays his game, the, the kind of keeper that he is, and the reason why Jurgen Klopp probably went and signed him was because of his distributional play, his almost his willingness to take risks in possession. I know Mignolet a couple of times would try the odd flick and everyone would kind of have their hearts in mouths. And yes, we have seen that a couple of times with Alisson. And I think even after that Leicester mistake, Klopp comes out and he says, I don't want him to be doing these flicks. I want him to be playing the ball. I want him to be progressive, but not to be silly. And the only thing I would ask is, do you think these errors, the case for improvement comes down from the type of keeper he is? and the way he's being asked to play in this Liverpool team. I think that's that's quite an interesting argument because you could sort of look at it as, you know, the modern goalkeeper. It might not be as much about the traditional aspects of goalkeeping in the sense that if the goalkeeper's distribution is going to get the team three goals over a season, um, but his mistakes cost the team the same amount, it's still, it sort of evens out. Um, and I think you have that to an extent with uh, Edison at Man City as well. So I think the, the position has changed slightly. And yeah, it is definitely worth considering um, how the goalkeeper can like be the sort of starting point for the attacks as well, which it wasn't actually something I thought about too much when I was writing the article. But yeah, there have been moments where um, Alisson's actually played quite an important uh, role in that respect. Yeah, I think one important element of Alisson's game is that it's difficult to sort of quantify, as you say, if he costs us three goals a season, but he makes three goals a season, it's even. But I think it's more about sort of how, what he brings to the table in terms of general play. Um, I think, you know, his passing game is really strong. He does move the ball quickly and it makes us more dangerous as a team and more effective as a team. And ultimately, yeah, OK, he is going to make mistakes because of the type of player that he is. But as you pointed out rightfully in the, rightfully in the article in a few moments ago, you know, the, he hasn't cost us a goal with that, with that side of his game since the Leicester game. So... Clearly, that is an area of his game where he's been a bit more intelligent. I think that is one of those things where, as a goalkeeper, you get better at it over time, especially when you're playing with a new team. It's what, you know, that Leicester game was, what, five, six games into the season, less than that. So, you know, he'd only played sort of a handful of games with that team properly in a, in a professional setting. So it, it's understandable that he's a little, that he's not quite adjusted to A, what Klopp's asking him to do, and what B, what his teammates are doing. Whereas increasingly, as the season's gone on, you've seen him get more comfortable making those decisions because he's more comfortable with the setup around him which I think is really important and that is something that's going to only improve as well over time um, and obviously we're seeing his sort of we have seen some some moments I think the the one that sort of jumps out to everyone is that Burnley game where he makes a good catch in the 93rd minute plays a wonderful pass and two passes later where we've got the ball in the back of the net and that's the sort of thing that we're talking about you know the, the trade-offs that are really important to that um, what I would say is that there are one or two weaknesses in this game that were highlighted before we signed him that potentially haven't necessarily improved as much as you might like one of those we saw against Spurs you mentioned is the uh the rebounds, he tends to palm the ball out into areas that are potentially dangerous, as we saw for that Ericsson chance. And that's maybe one area of his game that I would like to see him improve over time. And I think the other one is just his decision making a little bit. That is, I mean, that's a tough thing for a goalkeeper to, 
to sort of learn, especially when you consider this is only his second full full season at the, playing for a top club. Um, you know, obviously last season at Roma, he was basically went in completely cold and played a full season. So he's still getting used to the decision-making side of the game. There's a reason goalkeepers get better with age, not necessarily worse. So I think there's plenty of scope for Alisson as a keeper to improve. I think there's nothing wrong with, with sort of saying these are the strengths of his game, but these are some areas of his game that could still improve. Yeah, I think that the complicated nature of the, the topic is almost that, as you said there, there were a couple of instances where his rebounds have kind of palmed another opportunity for the opposition like the Christian Eriksen chance. But then equally, when he's making saves as he did against Napoli and and I agree with Dave that that Lingard save, you know, could prove to be pivotal. If Liverpool win either the Champions League or the Premier League or both, it could easily be attributed to both of those moments in either competition. And and that's what I come back to. I think, you know, it's it's difficult to sit here and maybe that's why people are, are willing to kind of not discuss it because we've seen the carriages, because we've seen the minulays and we've seen just how bad a goalkeeper can be. I know that, you know, that that's putting it bluntly. Um, but with Minule and with Carriers, you never had that sense of assurance ever. Whereas with Alisson, I think you've got the sense of assurance, but sometimes maybe it's, you know, is it due to complacency, Dave? Is it is it due to the fact that he is a keeper who knows he doesn't really have any competition and Minule, bless him, he's, he's doing well on the sidelines in terms of, being part of the dressing room, but he's never really going to challenge for a you know a competing place amongst Allison. So if Allison makes a mistake, if he's a little bit sloppy, then he knows it's not going to cost him his place. And given you know given the nature of Liverpool season, there's a lot of games where he's not doing anything for 60, 70 minutes. So that one chance he is, maybe if if he's a bit complacent, he's not really paying too much attention. Could that be a factor? Do you, do you reckon? Potentially, um, I think it is always best for goalkeepers, um, to be under pressure from a, uh, you know, a competent, uh, deputy, really. Um, but I think obviously it's difficult to, to, to say whether he's complacent or not because that is only something that, um, he and, he and the manager will, uh, will know really. Um, but yeah, the, you could make an argument for, putting him under slightly more pressure. Although, I think, you know, one of the things I talked about in the article with the fans being reluctant to criticise and plays a part in that as well because you have to think about the atmosphere you're creating around around the player and because he's not getting the pressure from the competition, I think he has to feel the pressure from the fans. You know, it's it's almost down to us to, you know, create that atmosphere where he fe- you know he feels like he's under a lot of scrutiny. And that could be the sort of substitute for the actual direct competition for the place. I'm actually going to go the other way on this one. I actually think the fact that there isn't really any under pressure on him has really kind of helped a bit. Because if you look at, um, you know, Mignolet was never a popular keeper here, mostly because he was really, really bad for long spells of his career. But even when he played well, there was always, okay, but yeah, but we're going to get in a new keeper soon, right? And then we obviously brought in Carrius. And then, I mean, you know, the pressure on Carrius was absolutely immense. You know, the reason it didn't work out for him here at Liverpool is just that he couldn't quite cope with the level of pressure on him. So I think it's good that we've got a goalkeeper now who, now who's been allowed to settle, who's been allowed to find his way into the team and who's been allowed to really not feel as if he's under too much pressure to do to do the, his his best right off the bat. Because, I mean, let's be fair, you know, Alisson is a top keeper and he's 
he's better than Minilane Karius because he's better than Minilane Karius. But the fact that we've we've accepted that he's better, and therefore there's no sort we sort of we know he's going to come good means that there isn't that same level of when he makes a mistake, the crowd aren't really on his back about it, and you know the team the the fans aren't really on his back about it, and that. I mean, that must help create a sort of a good atmosphere for him personally, because he must feel really relaxed. And I, I mean, yes, that obviously I, I do agree that will lead to some errors for complacency. But equally, I'd rather, you know, a handful of errors with complacency than a goalkeeper who felt like he was hounded out, which to an extent will definitely have happened with Carrius. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting point. And the, the last one I kind of want to raise, um, Dave, again, I'll go to you first here, is I think... As we've, you know, we've all discussed, I think you're quite right in saying this is a keeper who is doing really well for Liverpool. You've identified that he's doing really well. You're not, you know, you're not saying that he's a bad keeper by any stretch of the imagination. But because there's those should do better moments, because there's those opportunities where he's he's not necessarily delivered to the standard we've expected or been able to stop a goal, don't they always just happen in football? Because you're talking about a guy who is considered to be one of the best keepers, can be one of the best keepers. And obviously, he's, he's ahead of Vedison in terms of the Brazilian squad. But when you look at other Premier League goalkeepers, De Gea comes to mind, Edison comes to mind as being you know, the, in the top bracket. Those are two keepers who make the exact same mistakes, if not more. De Gea this season especially has made quite a few errors. Edison against Tottenham um, in the Champions League. That that Son goal doesn't look too good for him in terms of you know his, his goalkeeping. So could you argue that there are always going to be these moments, even if he is a top keeper? Every keeper, someone you know, someone's going to mistake uh, make a mistake at some stage. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd look at De Gea and say that he's the best goalkeeper in the Premier League, but he's made obviously a couple of mistakes this season and plenty during his United career. And I think what we were saying before about how it's so difficult for goalkeepers where the mistakes are so high profile compared to um, players in other positions. I guess when I was looking at it, I was just thinking like it's sort of praise for Alisson in the sense that we want him to be the very best goalkeeper in the world and we think he's capable of that. Um, so he has to strive to... I think there has been like one too many errors this season, really. And I think... What I was, the argument I was trying to put across was he has to try and iron out those mistakes. And then he's capable of being like head and shoulders above the rest, really, because I think he's, I think he's that good. And obviously he's only, um, in his mid twenties, really. So we could be looking at someone who's right at the top of, of the game, really, for the best part of a decade. Tom, would you agree with that in terms of, you know, the, the point I'm trying to make is, I would agree David De Gea is probably the best goalkeeper in the Premier League or, or has been considered to be over the last few seasons at least. But he is still someone who makes mistakes. Edison is still someone who makes mistakes. Manuel Neuer is still someone who makes mistakes. These keepers are at the very, very top level and they're still making errors. So, you know, I think there is obviously ground and you, you always as a fan want your player to do better. You want them to improve as a coach. That's exactly the same. But these are almost examples of a fact that you can be a world-class keeper and you can still have those mistakes in you yes and no I mean obviously players are humans they're never going to be perfect you're never going to get a goalkeeper who doesn't make any mistakes and obviously with goalkeepers when you do make mistakes you are punished more severely that's just the way these things are 
Um, that said, I don't think saying, you know, other goalkeepers make mistakes necessarily answers the fact that Alisson has made more mistakes leading to goals than almost any other keeper in the Premier League. Um, I think, you know, you look at the Haya, I think it's a good example of this, where actually, yes, he's made mistakes this season, but everyone's saying because he's made a few mistakes, he's not the same keeper he was two, three years ago, where he he just wasn't making mistakes. You look at Jan Oblak in Spain, he doesn't make mistakes. Neuer, again, is another good example of a goalkeeper who hasn't been the same in the last year or two because of injury, because now he is making mistakes. But actually, back when he was at his class, he didn't make the same level of mistakes. And I think, you know, these are goalkeepers that make consistently make less mistakes and consistently make less high profile mistakes as well. I think that's the thing. I think, yes, Allison is certainly always going to be a, the type of player playing in the type of system where he is going to make mistakes and that's fine. But equally, I don't think you can say that he's made significantly... I don't think you can say he's made similar levels of mistakes to the kind of goalkeepers that we're talking about over the period of time that we're talking about. Because I think the truth is he still can cut some of those errors out of his game if he wants to be a truly elite keeper. Because I think he's... I, I do agree. I do think he is very, very close to being the best keeper in the Premier League or the best keeper in the world. But he's not there yet. Because there are still elements of his game that do need to improve. And his error he does need to make less errors for me me, that for me that's just straightforward and again that's not necessarily to say he's a bad keeper at all because he's clearly not he's clearly and clearly close to being one of the top sort of three keepers in the world but if he makes mistakes every every sort of 10 games or so then he's not quite gonna get there to the same degree and uh, again I think there is scope for those mistakes to be cut out and I think he's clearly improved as the season's gone along but I don't think he's quite there yet that's my take on it all right, well, um, we'll wrap up there and we'll move on to, well, from someone who has earned plenty of praise in, in Alisson to one of the more divisive, if not the most divisive figure at Liverpool Football Club um, in Jordan Henderson, because there's a lot that's been said about Henderson throughout the season. There's a lot that's been said about him since he joined Liverpool. Uh, some people will never like him. Some people will always like him. Some people will be right bang in the middle. Um, he is what you would describe a Marmite for. You either hate him or you love him. And there's plenty on the site at the moment about Jordan Henderson, and that's largely due to the last two games where he's played a significant role. He's, you know, he orchestrated the Southampton win. He played a vital part against Porto as well. And Scott Groom has done an article which basically talks about how Henderson, especially in the light of the Southampton win, is silencing his critics and he is playing a vital role for Liverpool. Um, so, you know, D- Dave, coming to you first, what have you made of Henderson in the last couple of games? And and I guess, where do you stand in terms of on the spectrum of criticism? Is he is he someone you hate, someone you love, someone you, you think isn't good enough for Liverpool, but you're glad he's stepping up when, when the club need him in these last few games? What What's your take? Well, so if I was to be like a Marmite footballer, I think I I try my best to sort of stay in the middle of the two extremes, but um, because he gets criticised so much, I feel myself being pulled towards the um, the pro Henderson side because it's like the criticism seems so excessive sometimes that you you feel like an ob- obligation to defend him. I think the main thing I've noticed is you know you look at the Southampton game. Um, I, I don't think it was a case of Henderson coming on and you know putting in this. Um, you know, incredible performance. I think it was more about the the attitude that he showed and he came on and he was extremely fired up and he just it just looked to me, especially when you see a celebration and stuff, that 
you know, the amount of desire he was shown was, was so encouraging, really, you know. It's what you'd expect from the captain of the club. And I think you look at some of the performances, we're so fixated on trying to keep everything under control in these games that sometimes it's difficult to look at the team and say, you know, this looks like a team of players desperate to win the league. But that's what Henderson looked like. And I think if you can lead by that example for the rest of the season, you know, this we could be looking at, in my opinion, like the defining sort of period in Henderson's Liverpool career. Because, you know, if he's the one who ends up lifting that Premier League trophy, then I think that's the sort of moment that can make it really for him. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting way to put it because the Southampton game, obviously, you know, lots has been said about the fact that Jordan Henderson has always been a player who Klopp almost utilises to get more control in the midfield to kind of be that presence who just passed it off to the more creative figures. Um, and, and that's largely why he gets this criticism in terms of being a, a sideways passer because it's almost like people don't quite know what his job is or are expecting him to be this creative force when that's not what he's being asked to do. But against Southampton and against Porto in, in the Champions League, he came on and he was asked to fulfil a more advanced role, to, to be that rallying call. And I think, you know, you're spot on when you say that's that's what he did. That's the attitude he showed. He came on, he was visibly... You know, had a fire in his belly, rallying people, getting the team up and, and kind of setting the tempo, but from a more advanced position. And, and he visibly seemed to have a lot more freedom and enjoy it. Um, Tom, in, in terms of Henderson and the last two games, so, you know, bring in Porto as well here. Um, what have you made of Henderson? And, and for you, is it kind of a, oh, well, there was always a player in there. It was the role he was being asked to do. Um, you know, wasn't to his strengths, or is it a case of this is Henderson saying a big, you know, two fingers up to those who criticise him? He, he, that's his. It's almost like that's his kind of inspiration. That's his, you know, when you see him in a celebration, being so vocally passionate, being so, you know, heart on the sleeve. Is that to all these critics who just tell him he's not good enough and have always told him he's not good enough? I, I think that's a very romanticized way of looking at it i mean henderson's sort of lad who just seems to be angry at the world sometimes i'd, I'd agree with that i mean you look at there's that scene uh, there's that moment in the uh the england game i think it was i think it was the second european qualifier where they were like three nil up and he um told some montenegrin lad you don't even like you're not fit to wear my shirt or something like that and it's like all right like, uh, he just doesn't seem to have any chill like he seems to have absolutely zero chill which is great sometimes because he's the sort of player who when you need someone to sort of step up and have a bit of fire in their belly, he's absolutely going to deliver that. But sometimes you just kind of think you, you just need to calm down a little bit because it's not helping anyone. Um, but I think in terms of sticking two fingers up to his critics, I think, you know, I think it's a difficult one because on the one hand, he was, I mean, he, there's, there's no two ways about it. He was exceptional when he came off the bench against Southampton. He was exceptional against Porto. He was brilliant in both games. Um, he clearly benefited from playing in a more advanced role and he clearly benefited from playing in, in a midfield that had more structure, had more control and was better placed to actually deal with the, the game state. Uh, it also helped that Bobby Firmino was having a storming game as well. So I think, you know, it, it doesn't take a genius to point out that dropping Jordan Henderson in the position he's more comfortable in when the team is playing better means he's going to turn in better performances. That That's just the way it is. And, you know, I, I don't think Klopp should have to apologise for playing him in the six role for the last 18 months because he's been pretty solid in that role the majority of the time. Um, I think the thing about Henderson is, I think, I don't think he's actually criticised as much as people actually think he is. I think, 
a lot of people sort of say, I want to see Fabinho starting, or I want to see a midfield that isn't Henderson, Wijnaldum, Cater. Sorry, Henderson, Wijnaldum, Milner, because that midfield doesn't work as a three. And they immediately assume you're slagging off Henderson, which I don't, I don't think is true at all, actually. I think, I think the point is we've got... Henderson is a lot of things. He's a good player. I think he's a very good player. I think he has certain strengths and certain weaknesses. Fabinho is probably the best defense, one of the best defensive midfielders in the league and one of the best defensive midfielders in Europe. I don't think Henderson is quite that good. Again, that's no disrespect to Henderson. That's like saying I don't necessarily want to see Jordan Shakiri start. You know, a lot of people really, really like Jordan Shakiri because he's a really class player. But I don't think there's too many of them who would argue he should be starting ahead of Salah. That's kind of where I'm at with Henderson. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot of that is sort of, it's kind of frustrating to sort of put into words because it, a lot of the time you do sort of watch Henderson play. I mean, look, we've done, we've been doing this pod now for two years. Over the last 18 months, how many times have I said, you know, people are criticising Henderson for roles that he's not being asked to do? It's not fair to criticise him for not being creative. It's not fair to criticise him for not being attacking, for not making these gut-busting runs because he's playing as a defensive midfielder and he's pretty good at that role. He's very good at that role. So I think in terms of silencing his critics, I think maybe he silenced a portion of his critics that don't really exist because I don't think there's too many people that were saying he can't play as an eight. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the same people who've been saying Henderson's not been as good as he can be for the last two years have been saying it would be great to see him play in a more attacking role. Um, I don't think there was any ever any doubt of his quality in that position because that's how where he was at his best for us during the 13-14 season and to an extent 14-15 where he was also really, really strong. Um, I think the broader question here is what do you think of Henderson going forward? You know, wh- what do you see his role in the team being? Do you see him playing as the six? Do you see him playing as the eight? Do you see him flitting between the two? Do you see him as a substitute? And there are always going to be people on the internet who think he's crap, and there are always going to be people on the internet who think he's brilliant. I think a lot. I think a lot, lot more people are actually in the middle than they're willing to admit. And I think people are just kind of taking different sides of the same argument to an extent. So people are saying, I don't want to see Henderson in six because Fabinho is better. Versus, I want to see Henderson play in the eight versus I think Henderson's a really, really solid player that has a lot to offer to this team. I think there are a lot of people sort of within a, a lot closer in terms of opinions than they're maybe making out. It's just the way the debate is being framed is that you have to kind of be one or the other. I think that's interesting because, you know, the next question I was going to ask is where should he play? Um, you've kind of seemed to be of the opinion that he should be playing in the more advanced role or, you know, that, that he's done well there. Um, Dave, would you agree with that? Do you think, you know, if Henderson is going to be playing in this team because of the strength of Fabinho, because of the, the way he's kind of established himself now within this Liverpool midfield as that blanket player, um, while also being progressive with the ball? Is that why, you know, the media has, has come out and said that Henderson kind of asked for this more advanced role? He asked for the opportunity and he, he's obviously been given it. Is that where you want to see him stay now? Is is that what he can do to help this team? Well, it's still it's still really early, really, to um, think about whether it's his best position. But I think a lot of the time with Henderson, you get one really good performance followed by a six out of ten or something like that. But the last the last couple of games, you've seen two really really good performances in a row. So it's certainly very encouraging from that point of view. And I think if you're Henderson, you're looking at like Fabinho and, you know, this is somebody who's only going to improve as he gets more used to like English football and is probably going to have that sort of defensive midfield role locked down. So Henderson's looking at playing maybe a, a third of, of matches next season if he 
carries on playing in that um, defensive role in the midfield. So it certainly makes sense from his point of view to say, it's almost to remind Klopp that there is a different role that he can play. Um, and I think, you know, if he's going to play with the same sort of ambition and aggression that we've seen in the last two matches, um, that can only be a good thing, really, especially if it's going to um, lead to more creativity. I think, I actually think Hendo can probably start in either position. I'm actually happy with either. I think it just depends on the structure of the midfield because I think one of the issues that we've had is that we're tr- we've often tried to, to use the same kind of midfield in different games or the same kind of midfield too many times. So, for example, the problem against Everton was that we played three defensive midfielders, or the, but we didn't have Bobby Firmino starting. And I think you can get away with three defensive midfielders when you've got both fullbacks and Bobby Firmino playing because those three players are so important to the way we attack. But when you've got three defensive midfielders playing and no Bobby Firmino and no Trent or just one just one of the fullbacks or no Bobby or neither fullback and Bobby, then you're missing in too much creativity. So I think there's a, it just depends on the balance and the type of game. So, for example, in the big games, I don't mind Klopp using Henderson either as a defensive eight or as a six, either alongside Fabinho or... No, not instead of Fabinho. Fabinho has to start. But, you know, I don't mind him using Henderson as part of a, either a defensive eight or alongside Fabinho or rotating out for Fabinho because, let's be honest, Fabinho is not expected to start every game. Um, I also don't mind him being used the way he's been used, uh, you know, in the last couple of games as an eight. I, I'm happy with him starting in either position, to be honest. But I think, you you know, you've got to ask the question, is he one of our best three midfielders? Um, and does that mean he shouldn't start? So I don't think he is one of our best three midfielders. Again, I don't think that's necessarily an insult to him so much as uh, these are there are three lads that I think are really, really incredible in... Fabinho, Cater, and, and Genie. I think right now, you're looking at the midfield going, Wijnaldum looks knackered. He doesn't look like himself. Henderson should be starting. So you, so right, right now, yeah, I'd be playing Hendo in the eight alongside Cater, especially when that three of Fabinho, Cater, Hendo has worked really, really effectively. If I, if you offered me, a, you know, said to me now, Genie's going to be back to his best against Chelsea, I'd say, well, then it's Henderson who has to drop out, really. Um, but again, I just think it type on the type of game and the structure. But I think... There is scope for Henderson to start a lot of games in this team, especially when you consider the fact that he's not the fittest he's ever been and he's not going to be able to reach full fitness. So he, he is going to have his minutes managed anyway. So he's not going to be able to start three games a week, however you shake it up. So if he is going to be starting one or two games a week, allowing us to rest and rotate the likes of Cater, the likes of Genie, the likes of Fabinho, that's great. And depending on who's being rested, I don't mind, and who we're playing, I don't really mind what position he takes up in the midfield. I think there's lots of scope for him to be there. I think the I think the broader question has always been about the structure of the midfield rather than the individual players in it because we've got five players there and Henderson is is one of them who were all perfectly capable of doing a job in multiple roles in that midfield but it's just the combinations of the three and when they're being used and why they're being used that seem to be the issue at the moment and I think that's that's kind of the broader issue I think you know I don't think it's Henderson sticking up two fingers to his critics to play really well in a, in, a, in the A role because the majority of his critics have been saying I don't want to see Henderson in the six with Wijnaldum and Milner ahead of him because that that's a midfield that doesn't offer enough structure, control or creativity. But when you stick him alongside Cater and Fabinho, who do offer structure, control and creativity, yeah, he is really good because that midfield is really good. It's about the combination, not necessarily the individual players. So I, I think, you know, looking at it going forward, I think it's just about Klopp finding the balance. And that's something that he's been able to do a little bit more of in recent weeks. And I mean, look, by and large, Klopp's found the balance 
right all season. And whether that's been with Hendo not playing at all, or whether that's been with Hendo playing in the six or in a two-man midfield, because let's be fair, Henderson worked really, really well in a two-man midfield, either with Genie or Fab quite a bit in the middle period of the season where Klopp was using the 4-2-3-1 a lot. I think there's loads of scope for him to be playing that in those sorts of games. Um, and he's played decent roles in the eight as well. And he's act- he, to be fair, he's been playing well in the six. The question is just, where does he fit into the midfield in a broader period of context? And I think, I think the, you know, the majority of people probably feel it's sort of, you know, in various positions at various times, depending on who we're playing with various amounts of minutes because of the type of season that he's having. I think it's kind of easy to lose that. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting... You know, there's obviously going to be talk about Henderson playing a more advanced role now, even though it was you know just in two games. And, and, and that's kind of fueled by the fact that Klopp has come out with comments and said, you know, I'm sorry it's taken me this long to play Henderson there. And, and that kind of adds adds to the conversation in terms of, well, what is Henderson's overall future here? Who is he going to be, it, you know, if that's the case, who's he effectively going to be competing with now? And and a lot of that is just ifs, ifs and buts. We, we don't really know the shape of, of Klopp's squad in the next couple of years in terms of, you know, the specifics of what's going to happen. But I do think it's interesting and it, it kind of boils down to Jimmy Wijnaldum in, in many ways, as you said, Tom, because... Wijnaldum is a really important player for Liverpool, always has been, and I think he, he will be for years to come. But he's so important that it's almost like Klopp is afraid to drop him sometimes. And I think in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that the result of that has been that he's just absolutely knackered. I thought he was he was pretty poor against Spurs. Um, and he was more of a, like, kind of a right winger, right wing back than a, than a centre midfielder at times. Um, and sometimes, you know, he wasn't physically able to or didn't look like he was able to actually get back in position just because he's done so much running and so much work for this team. And I think that's a, a credit to his qualities, but it also provides an opportunity for players like Henderson. And when you've got a player in a Henderson who is so passionate and so raw in terms of his emotions, he's able to come on and, and rally everyone in the dressing room. He's able to, to get everyone to listen to him. He is a leader. People may not like to hear that. People want Virgil van Dijk to be the captain of this team. I understand that. But I think the last couple of games have shown that Henderson is a leader. He has an important role to play in this Liverpool team. And, and you know, as you said there, the specifics are hard to know. But, Dave, would, would you agree with that? Would you say, you know, his importance is, is clear for all to see? Yeah, I think... Um... In terms of leadership and dressing room influence, um, he's developed a lot um, the last few years. The thing which I think makes it interesting is, um, you know, next season potentially Oxley Chamberlain back in the team, and you know, rumours of us going for another creative mid- midfield presence. Then there's even more competition for fewer places. What role does he play then? So from that perspective, you could argue, you know, this is Henderson playing for his role in the team, you know, not just until the end of this season, but over the next few seasons. So, and I think based on what I've seen in the last two games, he is at grasping the, the importance of this period, which is quite encouraging. I think there are a lot of, I think, I, I, I personally find it weird when people try and compare sort of leadership with, with Virgil Henderson, because you look at like Gerard and Carragher, they're both the leaders in the team in their own way. Why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't we have 
a, a really good leader at centre back and a really good leader in midfield. I think it's obvious that he's a really, really that is that his captaincy is one of the strongest elements of his game. Um, I, I do agree about Ox. You know, the the bottom line is next season we are going to have two of the best number eights in Europe in that team and one of the best number sixes in 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 Europe in that team. And to that extent, Henderson is going to be a rotation option. But I mean, Oxley Chamberlain is one of those players who's going to take time to get back to full strength as well, and he's going to need his minutes managed as well. So there's plenty of scope for someone like Henderson to play a lot of minutes in various in various roles I just don't think that he's a first team player first first name on the team sheet anymore and I think that's fine because we've got a lot of really really good players in the squad all right well uh we'll round up there so we'll go to plugs um Dave of course you you first is there anything you want to plug or anything you you've got coming out in the next couple of days or weeks well um hopefully I'll be um writing something in reaction to the Chelsea game um and I'll also plug my Twitter, which is just Dave underscore Comerford. Perfect. And Tom, anything from you? Uh, yep, I've got an article out at the moment on Bobby. I wrote a few weeks ago about how Bobby was one of those players that I felt could do a lot better over the over the run-in, and he's been our best player three games in a row now, so he's definitely stepping up. Perfect. Um, from my point of view, I've, I've got a couple of things I'm working on, so... One looking at um, Marco Gruich, one looking at Harry Wilson and just a couple of other facets of Liverpool's season and, you know, what's to come next and, you know, the outcome of this season in terms of the, the path of development the Jurgen Klopp's team is on. Um, but, you know, as ever, thank you to Dave for coming on. Thank you to Tom, as usual, for, for helping host. Um, and thank you all for listening. And we'll be back next week. Podcast Network.